Before we dismiss for Children's Church, I'm going to say something about a... I'm not, I'm not sharing or preaching or talking tonight except for a little small introduction before we dismiss children for Children's Church or for, for uh, nursery and kids' night and youth. Let me just see the hand real quick before I read these just quick little verses. Has anybody ever talked to somebody who... When they got saved, they couldn't wait to tell everybody. You ever, you ever, I mean, they got saved and they are, woo! Have you ever met somebody like that or have you ever been that person? Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take just a little bit of uh, three minutes, four minutes. And I wanna, I'm going to read this just a little bit different than the average reading. Because it's just verses. That's all it is. It's three little verses. But for a minute, I want you to consider the idea, what if what if you used to have a fire that's gone, or your neighbor that used to come to church isn't here anymore, or you can see somebody fizzling out, or you're only going because it's church tonight. I guess we better go. So I'm probably going to shift into talking a little bit about 1 John after I finish one more sermon on Hebrews but listen to the way this first three verses 1 John chapter 1 was written because while we were singing I could almost see the excitement in a man's hand it's, I, could, I could almost see him testifying of an experience not just a dull dried up sermon so here's how he wrote what he wrote I feel the Holy Ghost I know what he did for me almost 33 years ago. Listen to what John is trying to say. That that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For a minute, just imagine John is saying, it, it came from everlasting showed up on the scene I saw it I I beheld the glory of God it's a run on sentence in in 1 John look if you're not used if you've never been excited about God what I'm saying and doing right now is like yeah 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 get on with the service let's move on I think John was trying to testify Uh, my, my hands have handled can you imagine hugging eternal life putting my arms around the son of God tears in my eyes God you've been Jesus you are so good my hands have handled the world the life was manifested we've seen it and bear witness and show unto you I'm, I'm showing you by the words that I'm writing eternal life which was with the father and was manifested to, to us. I saw it. I watched him crucified. I've seen and heard, and, and I'm declaring to you that you also might have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. To write something like that, to write something like that, it's as if I'm, I'm testifying. And so much so that I'm going to give my life for it one day. Peter's going to be crucified upside down. Paul's going to be headed. Whatever this was, was so real that the Appian Way, that the Romans would light the, the highway with the bodies of Christians who would lift their hands as the torches were lit and their bodies were burning to the glory of God. We don't have that. We got a little denomination, a little religion, and let's let's get on with the Sunday school now. What about what about he changed my life? And if you've had that, if you've had that, just reading those first three could make you want to do a backflip. So tonight, it's not just kids' night and youth night and nursery night. We get to share, those teachers get to share the love of God, eternal life with those children. So 
when we dismiss, I'm telling you, this ain't this isn't just a little, okay, good. This is a night where the kids can go over there and you know do something. Imparting love and life and light into their life. Father, as we dismiss them right now, I just ask you to bless every activity, whatever the craft is, Lord, whatever the sermon or other the preparation for the teachings, Lord. Touch every teacher from the infant, Lord, to the oldest in the youth group. Lord, I ask you right now, Lord, let a fire catch hold again in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Youth are dismissed. Kids' night is dismissed. Teachers are dismissed. Dismissed. Nursery is dismissed. We are blessed tonight. Please keep Brother Pat in your prayers. Brother Jones is going to come and share the Word of God with us tonight. Amen. Give the Lord a hand. In, uh, in one of the songs we sang tonight, the first song actually, um, we sang about a revolution. Um, how many of you think that this Jesus stuff can still stir a revolution in 2016? Say hallelujah. hallelujah. All right. Second part of that, another song we sang was let these hallelujahs be multiplied. This is, not what I, this is not what I'm sharing about tonight, but the songs kind of spoke to me a little bit tonight. If we believe he can still cause a revolution right here, and we can actually sing hallelujahs and say praise him because of what he's done in our lives, that should be multiplied. We should be saying hallelujah to the point where it rubs off. And the person beside you who may not know him says, I want to know him. And then that hallelujah, because of your hallelujah, that hallelujah gets multiplied again and again and again and again. Now let me get to, let me get, let me get to what we're actually going to talk about tonight. Um, open up to Matthew 16, starting in verse 13 with me. Father, I just pray that you would speak tonight. Lord, we want to see a revolution. We want to see... You move in a mighty way, not only in our own hearts and in our own lives, but in the world around us. And I pray, God, that whatever comes out of my mouth is nothing more than your words. Speak to us tonight, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. This particular passage, uh, Matthew 16 again, starting in verse 13. 16, 13, not 15. This particular passage is in three of the Gospels, and it's very familiar. Brother Pat has said many times that when it's in the Bible three times, he's trying to get our attention for a reason, and I think that's the case with this passage. Verse 13, Jesus basically says, who do men say? That I, the Son of Man, am. He's asking his disciples, What is this world? What is this culture we live in? What are they saying about me? And we could ask the same thing today in 2016. What is our culture, the world we live in? What do they say about Jesus? Because I'll tell you what they said about him back then. It says right here Some say you're John the Baptist, others say you're Elijah. Others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets, or whatever. So at least back then, they connected Jesus with some kind of biblical history kind of thing. So at least they had that part down. But what about the world we live in? What about Stanton? What about Virginia? What about, what about the United States of America? What do you think our culture says about Jesus? Not much. I know they know how to use his name in vain. I know that because you hear it everywhere you go. But they, the culture we live in, if Jesus was standing here right now and said, who do, who do people say I am? 
I don't think we'd even have as good an answer as what the disciples did at that time. So somewhere in history, there's been a decline in the perception of who Jesus is. Verse 15, and this is where Jesus starts to get personal. He says, okay, what about you? Who do you say I am? You know, Jesus asks us, asks us that daily. And I'll tell you, there's days that I fail to answer that question well. And we probably all do. There's days that I'm probably in the checkout at the grocery store, and instead of opening my mouth, I keep my mouth shut. Or wherever you might be, at work or wherever. And every single day when we wake up, that's what's on Jesus' mind. Who do you say I am? Verse 16, Peter answered correctly. He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, the Messiah, basically. Peter knew. And there's something really significant that comes in verse 17 about Peter's answer. He said, you are blessed. Why? Why was he blessed? Was he blessed because he was he blessed because he had gone to Sunday school all his life and he knew the correct answer up here? No. There's people all over the world that have gone to church or Sunday school all their lives and know every answer up here, but don't have the answer right here. And that's what sets Peter's answer apart. Peter had heart knowledge. Brother Pat on Sunday was talking about different revelations. Do you remember any of them? The big one that this is, is a theophany. Peter had a revelation from God who Jesus was. He didn't need Sunday school. He didn't need a pastor. He didn't need all that. He knew in his heart, because of his love of the Savior, he knew who Jesus was. Verse 18, Jesus continues, and he says, You're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Let me pause for just a second right there. The Greek has at least three different terms for rock, some kind of rock. Lithos is a very, 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 very small rock. Smaller than a pebble, really. Peter, his name is Petra, which means kind of a medium-sized rock. When he says, on this rock... I'm sorry, Peter is Petros. When he says, on this rock, it's Petra, which is a foundation stone. Now, there's a lot of different theories about what Jesus was talking about there. I've heard a lot of people say that the church was built on Peter's faith and all that. I'm not sure that that's completely accurate. I'm not sure it's completely wrong. But I do know that they're two different words. And I think... Peter, his name means rock, but it means a small rock. And when Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church, he's talking about a big foundation rock, a foundation stone. So maybe, we don't know, but maybe one of the theories is that Jesus actually was kind of saying, on this rock, talking to it about himself. One of the things in this verse, he says, on this rock, I will build my church. Implied in that statement is the idea that the churches or church at the time 
couldn't be his church because why would he need my church if they are my church? Does that make sense? So he was saying all the established religion that's out there, all the things that people have been teaching you, all the religious garbage that you've been fed is not my church. My church starts right here on faith because it was Peter's faith and heart knowledge that Jesus was referring to. Verse 19. Let me finish 18. He says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades. Now, Hades is actually the Greek word. I think King James has the gates of hell. Shall not prevail. Now, Hades which is in the NIV, which is actually the original word. Hades, in Greek, the original Greek, is not so much a place. It's more of a state of the departed souls, if that makes any sense. It's not so much like a phys- like, like this room is hell and all the dead people are in it. It's more the state of those who've passed away. So it's a state of being. In other words, a state of salvation or a state of lacking salvation. But even death can't overcome my church and what I'm going to build. When he continues in verse 19, he kind of takes an interesting piece of information. He says, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And he says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, one of the things that comes with power is responsibility. And that's what Jesus is referring to to some extent. Because one of the things that he's talking about here is if you're bound, if you have someone who's bound in sin and you have the power to go and loose them, guess where they'll be loosed? In heaven. Because you help set them free through the power of Jesus. Because, see, he gives us the power And a lot of us sit and do nothing with the power. It's the loosing and the binding that is what we're supposed to do with the power he says we'll have. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. Now, There's at least a couple of theories on that. I personally think that Jesus didn't want to be misconceived as out for some kind of political gain. In other words, we all know that the Pharisees and Sadducees and all the religious leaders of the time did not want someone to overtake their power, political power, because that's what they had. They had all the political power that you could imagine back then. And he did not want through them spreading the message that he was the Messiah, that somehow that would get twisted into he's here to be the new power guy. That's that's my take on it. I don't know whether that's completely accurate or not. But verse 21, Jesus begins to explain what was to come. It says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. That was a heavy thing to tell his disciples, right? And Peter, who Jesus just referred to as a really good guy, you're blessed and your faith and all this is part of what I'm going to build my church on. Peter has good intentions. We all know the old saying about good intentions, right? 
Peter has really good intentions. And he says, "Uh uh-uh, never, Lord. This will never happen to you. And he has good intentions. The problem is, his intentions come from the flesh. Right? That dirty old self. Peter and Jesus had different opinions on death. They had different perceptions of death. Jesus knew that death was the key to freedom. Peter only saw death as an end. Jesus saw death as a beginning. And so they had very different views of death. Jesus immediately rebukes him. And he says, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You don't have in mind the things of God. You've got the things of men in your mind. So in six verses, Peter's just gone from the rock to Satan. How fast do we fall? Peter, in my opinion, Peter's kind of my Bible hero. But Peter, because Peter had... Peter had kind of the faith that would move a mountain. But Peter also screwed up several times. And I think, I don't think Jesus was actually calling him Satan. I think he was saying your intentions are from Satan, and and that's not what I'm about, and so I need you to get out of my way because my eyes are fixed on the cross when nobody else's are. But he said, you're a stumbling block. So we see Peter, who Jesus just said five minutes ago, you're a rock. Basically said, I love you, man. You're one of my best buds. You're awesome. And then two minutes later, he says, get out of my way. You're a stumbling block for me. And I'll tell you right now, there's days that I feel like I'm buds with Jesus. And then five minutes later, I feel like I'm a stumbling block for him. And that's where we roll into the, what the real heart of what I want to tell you about tonight is. Starting in verse 24. This was a major point of emphasis for Jesus, and that's why it's in all three Gospels. Jesus said, if anyone put on the brakes, if, you see, Jesus is not going to drag anybody kicking and screaming. Everything that has to do with commitment, Jesus always puts an if, because he's not going to make you do it. He's not going to make you lift your hands, and truly worship him. He wants you to. He's not going to make you share what he did for you with anybody else. He's not going to make you do it. He wants you to. If you're a, and I'm going to, I'm going to get to some football references in, in a few minutes, but if you're a Redskins fan, or Cowboys fan, or whatever you might be, and I'm not a big NFL fan, so I don't, you know, I don't claim any sides, but if you're a big, some football fan, and your team wins a close game on Sunday, so that they can make it into the playoffs or whatever, I bet you talk to somebody about it on Monday, but how many times do we go Monday Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, even Sunday, and we don't ever mention the Lord's name. And that I'm just as guilty, if not more guilty, than everybody else. 
We all do it. Why? That's what Jesus is getting at. So, he starts off with, if anyone. If anyone would come after me. He must. And there should be a colon right here. Because this is kind of like a a list of things you got to do. You see, Jesus is giving us a recipe. And recipes require an order, right? If I am making cupcakes, and the first thing I do is throw everything in the oven, I'm not going to have cupcakes, am I? I'm going to have a bunch of stuff that cooked in the oven in a big pile, right? Recipes require the right ingredients, and they require doing things in the correct order. Otherwise, it doesn't work. So, the first thing Jesus says is, if you're going to come after me, you have to deny yourself. What does that mean? What does it mean to deny yourself? In Greek, deny means two things. Probably the easier version is abstain. Okay? When you're fasting, you're abstaining from food or water or whatever. If you go on a hunger strike, I worked in a prison, so I'm familiar with hunger strikes. Guys go on hunger strikes where they don't eat for days and days and days because they want some kind of, you know, they want some kind of special privilege or whatever. All right? They're abstaining from food. Jesus says you got to abstain from yourself. Jesus said it ain't about you. The other version, which is a little bit harder to swallow, of the Greek definition is to disown. You have to disown yourself. Everything you ever wanted, everything you ever thought would be good for you, that girlfriend, that boyfriend, that new house, that new car, that job that pays a lot more money, you got to disown it. That's not to say that God's not going to bless you in those things, possibly. But see, disowning yourself means I no longer take what I want as the priority. I take what Jesus wants as the priority for my life. And then whatever he blesses me in after that, I'm good with. You see, the self, ourselves, is not going to willingly give up the throne. We have to make it. We have to make ourselves day in and day out. And that's why Jesus says, all right, today, who do you say I am? Because each and every day, we got to get up and say, it's not about me. And I'm telling you, we live in a world that's going the other direction. If there was a a better way to say it than 180 degrees the other direction, I'd say it, but that's as far the other direction as you can go. Jesus says you have to disown who you are. You are no longer James Potter. You're my servant, and you have a purpose. You no longer can say, I don't want to forgive him. He hurt my feelings. Denying ourselves, one of the biggest things is forgiving others. Because in this world where everything's about ourselves, we are taught that forgiving others is weak. And in this culture, it is weak. But how do you think Jesus looked hanging on a cross? The second thing. First, he says, you got to disown yourself. You can no longer partake in who you think you are or who you thought you were because you're somebody different now. The second thing is, you got to take up your cross daily. 
You see, in the first century, when crucifixions happened, the cross was not a burden. Take up your cross is not some kind of call for you to bear some burden in your life. That is a false teaching that has gone down through the years. Carrying your cross is not some personal gratification that you have to carry, you know, this terrible burden that I have, I have, uh, you know, I, ha- I had this bad childhood, and now I just got to carry the burden of it. That's my, that's my cross. No. Uh-uh. In the first century, you see, the cross was one thing. It was solely intended to be an ugly picture of death. It's the equivalent of Jesus standing right here with you right now and him saying, all right, everybody take your lethal injection and take it with you today. Or, all right, strap that electric chair on your back and carry it around with you today. You see, it's a call to die. It's not a call to carry some meaningless burden in your life. And that's not to downplay the burdens that we do have in our lives. We all have burdens. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. He says you have to die. Not physically. You have to die to self. You have to disown yourself, and you have to die to yourself. The next couple of verses, 25 and 26, kind of explain what he means by you have to die to yourself. He says, whoever wants to save his life, in other words, whoever thinks this life on this earth and everything you can attain and everything you can obtain and everything that you can think that you are, everyone who works hard to put value in that, you're going to lose it because it means nothing in the eyes of eternity. But whoever loses his life, whoever dies to yourself for me, for Jesus, is going to find life. What good is it for a man if he gains the whole world? I don't know Donald Trump's salvation status, okay, so I'm not condemning him. But what good is it if you are ten times what Donald Trump is? You own half the globe. You own all the money in California, the old song that used to be out. All the gold in California is in a bank. You could have everything in the world. You could be the most powerful person in the world. But if you lose your soul, who cares? What good is it to do all of that and exchange all of that for your soul? That's what Jesus is talking about when he says you've got to die. You don't have to physically die. We're all going to physically die one day. He's talking about while you're here, you've got to die to self. You don't have to turn with me, but Matthew 10, 38. If you think Jesus wasn't being serious, now... Pastor James last Wednesday preached on the verses just shy of Matthew 10.38. And he was talking about, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. Be afraid of those that can kill the soul and all that. Remember, Pastor James was talking about that last Wednesday night. A few verses over, Jesus is continuing this speech that he's giving. And he says, anyone that does not take his cross... In other words, anyone who does not die to yourself and follow me 
You're not worthy of me. Now, that's a hard pill to swallow. But what Jesus is saying is, if you're not willing to die to yourself, all the things that you think you need and want in this life, if you're not willing to nail that to a cross, then what Pastor James was talking about a couple of weeks ago, you might get to that point where Jesus says, I never knew you. I don't do a good job of it a lot of days, but I want to do a better job. And that should be all of our prayer. God, help me to lay it down today. And thirdly, back in Matthew 16. So he tells us that we have to disown ourselves. We have to die to ourselves. And then he says, you have to follow me. Follow means to be in the same way with someone. That's what it means in Greek, to be in the same way with. That means when I go this way, you go this way. We're in the same way. When I say, let's go here, you go here. We're in the same way together. You could think of that as a funeral procession. Everybody's in the same way. They're all headed to the same place. And that's what Jesus is telling us that we have to do. Once you've laid aside yourself, now you're in the carpool line with me. And we've got a purpose together. We're linked. Kyle Eidelman wrote a book several years ago called Not a Fan. It's a good book. And there's one real purpose behind the book that he wrote. You see, the purpose of the book that he wrote is that Jesus doesn't want fans. He's not interested in that. Jesus wants followers. And there's a big difference. Fans... I'm a, I'm a college football fan, okay? Uh, I went to Auburn, so I'm going to bash Alabama fans for just a minute. University of Alabama. Here's what Alabama fans do. They have all the stuff. They have all the shirts. They have all the bumper stickers. They have all the gear. They want to be close enough to get the benefits of being an Alabama fan. Okay? When Alabama wins a national championship, woo! We won! But guess what they're not? They've never been to a game. They've never been on campus. They've never attended a class. They've never made a sacrifice. You see, fans want the benefit without the sacrifice. Fans want to come to church but don't want to make any kind of real sacrifice of service. Fans can pray at mealtime or whatever. They can put a bumper sticker on their car. They can have all the gear. Fans, unfortunately, can look to next season when this season's not going so hot. Let me flip over to John 6 real quick, and I'll show you what fans do. John six sixty six. Now, this was right after... Jesus was telling everyone, first he, first he feeds the 5,000, then he walks on water, and then Jesus is sharing with everyone, and he says, I'm the bread of life. There is nothing else on the menu. I'm it. 
And everyone kind of said, uh, hang on. What's he talking about? What you talking about, Willis? Many of his disciples, verse 60, said this is a hard teaching. And they, be, they began to say, I'm not sure who's going to accept this. And here's what fans do in verse 66. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him because it was too hard. They were ready for next season. They weren't ready to wear it through all of the hard season. They wanted the benefit without the sacrifice. And that's what fans are. That's what fans are about. But you see, Jesus wants followers. He wants us to talk about repentance and not just forgiveness. Yeah, Jesus offers forgiveness. And I can go share with some random person on the street who's drunk or stoned or whatever and say, Jesus wants to forgive you. But you know what Jesus really wants if you're a follower? He wants a repentant heart, not just forgiveness. You see, forgiveness is the benefit. Jesus wants our surrender. He wants us to think and talk and share with others about surrendering to him more than he wants us to try to scare people into salvation. Those two things are very different. Yes, People need salvation. But without surrender, what is salvation? He wants us to talk about brokenness more than happiness. You see, this world wants everyone to believe that you need to be happy. You need to be happy. There's preachers that'll... You could probably find one on TV just about every night of the week. You turn to the right channel. God wants you to be happy. You need to be happy in this life. No. I'm not saying that God doesn't want you to be happy because I think he does. But happiness comes through brokenness. When you're broken and submitted to him, you can't take the joy away from that. He wants us to talk about death more than life. You see, this world wants us to think that it's all about this life. And Jesus says, no, you got to die. You got to disown yourself and you got to die to yourself. And when you do that, when you get that, now, come follow me. Come be in the same way that I am. Go the same direction I go. Jesus turned the whole concept of what it means to love God on its head. When people said, all right, uh, you know, the Jewish law then was that you only had to forgive someone for sinning against you three times. So they said, okay, God, uh, Jesus, um, you know, how, how many times do we have to forgive our brother seven times and they thought they were you know i'm going above and beyond jesus said nah seven times 70 times you see it's not about numbers with god it's about our hearts matthew and i'm going to close we're going to actually get done on time tonight matthew 4 18 through 22. You want to know what follow looks like? As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. They were doing what they did. If you work at Walmart, you were working at Walmart that day. If you work for 
Target Distribution, they were working at Target Distribution Center that day. If you're a mechanic, they were mechanicing that day. If you're a contractor, they were contracting that day. And Jesus walked up. They didn't know who he was. He wasn't Joel Osteen where they knew his face. They had never seen him before. Never knew him. And he said, come follow me. And I'll make you fishers of men. And what did they do? At once. Not after they thought about it. Not after they prayed about it. Not after they talked to their mama and their daddy about it. Not after they considered the financial benefit or the loss or whatever. No. They dropped their nets and they followed him. And they gave the rest of their lives to follow him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers. James, son of Zebedee and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. That's Jesus' example of what following is. When he calls you, you drop yourself. Because that's who these guys were. They identified themselves as fishermen. That's who they were. That might as well have been their last name. John Fisherman. Might as well have been their last name. That was who they were. And when Jesus said, follow me, they dropped it like dead weight. And that's what, that's what he's calling us to do. You got to disown yourself. You got to die to yourself. And then follow me. Let's pray. Father, you're so good to us. Unbelievably good to us. You can take us out of wherever we are. And when you call us, if we will lay down who we are, you will change our lives forever. Lord, I know there's days, there's weeks, months, years that I let slip that I fell away, that I wasted. And I pray that everyone sitting here tonight would take a stand and say, I deny who I am. I deny, I disown the things that I want, the things that I thought I was. I disown it tonight, God, so that I can follow you. things as humans that we are so uncomfortable with is silence and I would just ask that we take a few minutes to just be quiet and let God speak maybe he's he's pulling as hard as he can pull at your heart and saying, come on. I died for you. 
can't you just get up and go and get on your knees before me? And for some of us, all we need is to make one step. And he'll meet you right there. He wants all of you. For just a few minutes, if you'd just play quietly, Stephen. For just a few minutes, I'm going to stop talking. Would you just submit to God? Would you just listen to his voice? And whatever he's saying to you tonight, submit to him. Deny yourself. Disown who you think you are. And submit to him. Thank you, Lord, for receiving us. Thank you more than anything for loving us. And all the times that we fail, and all the times that we fall short, you're always there to build us back up. I pray that your word has been planted tonight in our hearts. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.